What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Church and Other Drugs. My name is Jed. You are the congregation, and that makes this a show. I hope everybody's doing good out there. The Mandalorian Season 3 is over, and I'm going to give it a solid 7 as a a compendium, as a total. I'm going to give it a 7. I think it has some issues that need fixing, but... Well, I can't give spoilers, but the last episode gave me some definite chills. Um, in other media news, I saw Evil Dead Rise last night, and that movie, 10 out of 10. I loved it. Uh, if, I mean, full disclosure, it is probably the goriest movie I've watched uh, in theaters in a very long time. But it's like uh, kind of John Carpentery. I mean, if you're familiar with Evil, Evil Dead, it's kind of like over the top on purpose. But uh, if that's not your thing, you're going to hate it. If it is your thing, you're going to love it. It's fantastic. Uh, and what else you're going to love is today's episode with Josh Lawson. So this was um, a guy I got turned on to from Friend of the Pod, Josh Patterson, uh, who reached out and said, hey, this guy wrote a book you might be interested in. And that book is called Drugs and Jesus. And I don't think there's ever been a more perfect uh, author of book title to have on the show than that. Um, So Josh uh, talks all about harm reduction and how um, he has uh, tried to implement that in his kind of church community in Ohio, where he's from. And he's basically writing a book to conservative evangelical Christians making a case for harm reduction that, that addicts and harm reduction is something that uh, Christians should be concerned with and I'm all for that so uh, let's hear what Josh has to say and as always send me an email church at gmail.com um, got a new email from Trevor Vance thanks for reaching out buddy said a new listener um, storefrontier.com slash church and other drugs and patreon.com slash church and other drugs Yeah, yeah, just getting home from work. What what is what is are so are you still a pastor? I am not currently a pastor, no. Okay. So what's your so um, I was What's your full-time? What's your day job? 
full-time gig. I work for our local university. Okay. Their innovation hub. Yeah. So, um, basically providing services and programs for aspiring entrepreneurs and business owners. Oh. That's my, that's my full-time gig. I also do a few other things, but, uh, that's, that's the main thing that I just got home from. Okay. Um, so is it Josh or Joshua? Uh, Josh is fine. Josh is fine. So speaking of Josh's, I don't think there's ever been, um, a more appropriate guest for my show than, uh, than you. And I, and it's funny, I actually, uh, when your book came out, I got, um, somebody tagged me in a Facebook post and they're like, you need to have this guy on. And I was like, well, you are in luck because right I'm talking to him on Thursday. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's cool. Yeah. And I've been reading your book too. It's been my sauna read recently about, about halfway through it. Um, very cool stuff. So I guess I can all to give you an idea of, of why I was like, man, this is, this is kind of dead on. So hmm. my listeners know, um, but the kind of the genesis of the podcast was um, me and my my former co-host. Um, we both grew up in the church um, and then both became prodigious drug addicts, uh, then got into recovery and then got into 12 step recovery and um, realized that there was a lot that the church could learn from 12 step meetings. There was a lot that 12 step meetings could learn from church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a weird um, being a Christian in 12 step recoveries. I mean, I'm in the South, I'm in Louisiana. So there's, it's, it's not that crazy, but more so 12 step recovery is going to be more higher power stuff. Um, you right. know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. uh, Eastern mysticism. There's a there's kind of a flavor for for every okay. taste right now. So finding myself as a Christian in it was actually kind of unique, and there weren't as many. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of had to make my own community. I guess is kind of what I'm saying. And okay, uh, so finding other people where that intersection kind of lies, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it's it's um it was very interesting to see, um, to see someone else. And I first thought that, uh, you would have, you actually were in recovery. And so it's, it's, it's rare and refreshing to see, uh, an outsider, I guess I'll call you, um, (laughs) be, be passionate about that kind of work and, and the nitty gritty Mm -hmm. because, so that's, that's my day job is I'm, um, a registered addictions counselor. Um, it's tough work. It's thankless, brutal, devastating Mm -hmm. work, right? It's not for, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. So all that to say, that's a little bit of my background, but I, um, am very curious to see what, what makes you tick and to obviously hear about the book and, um, just kind of hear about, you know, how you felt called to, that particular uh cross section of humanity Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's if you want to get right into it it's a great question and so we already covered the normal disclosure you know a lot of times when i speak to people you know they do make that assumption that 
I'm coming from that angle, being a person in recovery myself. So I always want to try to make that clear up front in case that assumption is being made. Um, my entry into this field, into this work, um, really started back in about 2018. I was given an opportunity to work uh, for an organization called Faith in Public Life, and they were working on a statewide ballot amendment in Ohio, which is where I live, Southern Ohio, that was pursuing criminal justice reform, specifically as it intersects with the needs of people you know, who use drugs and those, those seeking recovery, trying to divert more public funding from incarceration as a response to drug use and addiction over to treatment you know, and harm reduction services. It's kind of a more of a public health framing rather than a criminal justice issue. Of course, before that, you know, I had peripherally, you know, been aware of the the situation, you know, what we call the opioid crisis. I knew people, you know, who had suffered, struggled with drug addiction, even a few who had lost their lives, you know, at some point along the way. Uh, but I wasn't directly involved until that point. That kind of gave me an opportunity to get close to people who were um, kind of suffering the full weight of the opioid crisis, who were directly affected you know, whereas I'm a normie, you know, and I haven't had that uh, same experience that a lot of them have. Um, and, you know, as I got to know people, I listened to their stories, as I really kind of saw into the, you know, what they had been experiencing and how that had affected their lives, really, it just kind of, you know, broke my heart, moved me, you know. So my first book, The Face of Addiction, came out of that season in particular, that released in 2021. And that's, that tells the stories of 12 individuals that I was privileged to kind of cross paths with in those early days as I was just kind of getting my bearings and beginning to understand a little bit better what was going on here. And um, really seeing a lot of the stigma that surrounds people who use drugs and those who are in recovery, especially if you've had any kind of contact with the criminal justice system, you know, maybe you've got a felony on your record, something like that. And then all the barriers to successful reentry that that, that poses for people. And uh, just seeing the way that society, you know, as a whole, People in general look down their noses, you know, at folks uh, in, the, in that world. And, uh, you know, sometimes for good reason, you know, they've had personal experiences that have, you know, been negative, harmful, they've been hurt. But other times just because it's, it's uh, you know, folks who use drugs and have an addiction aren't make for an easy scapegoat for all of society's problems. <clears throat> so I wrote that book to try to humanize, you know, some of the, the, the folks whom society is quick to dismiss. But as far as my own origin story goes, <clears throat> I kind of allude to that in the preface to the face of addiction uh, because it didn't take long, you know, getting into this work and beginning to kind of like do some public advocacy, try to spread awareness, that kind of thing. People, you know, if they didn't assume that I was a person in recovery, they quickly asked, well, why do you care about this issue? You know, because my experience has been that, you know, either you're a person with lived experience and you found your way back and now you want to give back and you're, you're doing that kind of work, or you're like a public health worker of some sort. You may be compassionate, you may care, but you're also paid to be there. So in between those two poles, there's not a whole lot of people who are really you know, passionate, vocal as, as kind of an ally and an advocate. So people would ask me, why do you care? What are you, what are you doing here? You know, this is not a place to make a lot of money or become famous or anything like that. And uh, you know, as I thought of it, I realized that it's going on about seven years now. I had an experience in my own personal life that was kind of my equivalent rock bottom experience. It wasn't drug related, but for me, it was something that was like that lowest point, nowhere to go, but up. I was going through something very intense at the time that I just uh, couldn't pull myself out of. 
very dark place. You know, I, I talked to a few trusted friends, you know, I sought counseling, I was reading books, I was just trying to do what I could to pull myself out of this place that was really beginning to affect me emotionally, spiritually, even physically affecting the well-being of my family and just couldn't do it. But there were two guys who came into my life at that time who were able to speak to me in a way that kind of gave me the tools that I needed to overcome the challenge that I was facing. And the plot twist there is that both those guys were in active recovery from a substance use disorder and uh, knowing, learning their history, knowing where they had come from, those two guys had reached multiple points in their life where they would have easily been written off by most of the people in their lives and society at large. You know, folks who would easily say things like, you know, lock them up, throw away the key, narc them once and let them die. But fortunately, you know, by the grace of God, they found their way back from a very dark place. And they brought with them, you know, this kind of insight, I think, into the, just the general human struggle um, that manifests in all kinds of unique ways, you know, whether you, you struggle with a drug addiction or if it's something else. And uh, they brought back those kind of tools that could help a guy like me when, when nobody else at the time could, including myself. And so really, they helped me kind of save myself out of a very dark place. And so it formed this conviction inside of me that kind of led me into the work unconsciously at first, but has fueled my, my conviction, you know, my, my motivation ever since, which is that there's not another person out there right now with a needle in their arm in some abandoned house or dark alley who doesn't have that same potential and hold that same value. Uh, just as a human being made in the image of God, um, that they could find their way back and bring the kind of insight that as society, we'd be just foolish to dismiss. So the kind of thing you were talking about there to start with. So, you know, since then, every time I get that question, that's, that's it. That's my origin story as to why I care, what kind of fuels my, my motivation in all this, this stuff. And so, yeah, yeah. I love all that. Um, and so at that point you were a pastor, am I no. getting that right? No. Okay. No, 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 I was not. So I've got roughly 20 now a little bit more years of experience in various forms of Christian ministry, informal and okay. in, informal. <clears throat> but I, I never, I was never an, a pastor officially. That came later, okay. you know, after I got into, into this kind of work. And that was, um, that started in, uh, that, that would have started in uh, 20, early 2019. Yeah. How, so I pastored for about a year and a half, two years. How, how did you grow up? Uh, Christian home, saved later in life? What was yeah, yeah, no. So it's funny hearing you talk about, you know, your community down there, because here in Southern Ohio, we're all Christians. <laughs> it's a, it's a cultural norm. Um, and, and there's not, there's not a wide variety of, of different faiths and, and religious beliefs. You're, you're either Christian or you're not. Now that's, that's generalizing. There are some folks who don't fit that right. mold, right? but you know, by and large, that's the predominant flavor. So I grew up in church, just like most people, you know, in my neck of the woods did. And, um, so I had that influence very early on. I remember I was baptized as a boy. For myself, I didn't become serious about my faith and begin to, um, you know, deliberately follow Christ until my senior year of high school, which is way back now in 20, 2000, 2001. I had a good friend who died by suicide that year, and that really impacted me. And part of what came out of that, that season was a, a turn towards Christ and a turn eventually soon after towards ministry. And like I said, that followed upon you know, 20 years after that, that, you know, very different forms. I went to Bible college, graduated there, but I didn't uh, actually <clears throat> engage in pastoral ministry officially until, yeah, much later on. Okay. Um, and so 
at that point that like seven years ago, what did, what did life look like? What did life look like? Well, um, it's a, it's a, it's one of those sensitive subjects for me. Oh, okay. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I tell the story without diving into a lot of detail because there are people in my life whom, whom, whom is involved in that. Sure. And, uh, it's the aspects that touches them, you know, then it's, it's people that are, they're still in my life. That's, it's not my story to tell as far as their involvement in that. But, you know, it was a very severe interpersonal struggle. I've got a friend here who likes to say that we're all in recovery from something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I count myself as a recovering codependent among other things. And so it was a, it was a relationship with someone very close to me that for a number of reasons, kind of over time, just kind of went off the rails and had become very, you know, t- in my experience, very harmful, very destructive, you know, and toxic in some ways. Um, and not, and a lot of that being my responsibility and my fault. And uh, so it, it just led me into a very dark place in terms of like, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, various other things. And um, that was what I was going through at that time. And that was what those guys were able to help me with in a way that really I couldn't, I've been struggling with it for years and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And just was being really beginning to threaten everything. I guess you could say I kind of hold dear. Yeah. And I think, so there's definitely been um, a shift in public awareness about things like uh, mental health recovery. Like I would almost venture to say that, that, you know, especially with the celebrities getting in on it, that it almost is like in vogue to, in, in a sense where it's, it's like, it's right. really like, now it's weird if you don't have a therapist sort of thing when before it was like, <laughs> oh, especially, um, and I'm originally from South Carolina. So that was yeah. the, uh, yes, everybody there is Christian. Uh, right. 100%. <laughs> um, and, you know, all you need to do to solve every problem you have is just give it to Jesus. And it's that simple. And then right. boom, you're good. Uh, and as, as a matter of fact, the first outpatient uh, treatment center that I went to was a faith-based place in the mountains of North Carolina. And that, that essentially was their message was that you're, you know, you've been healed. You're good. You will never have mm. this struggle again for the rest of your life. And right. when that didn't come true, that was a huge gut punch, right? Of sure you know, that that was being a being on the one hand being a Christian, on the other hand being um, an addict was a massive cognitive dissonant struggle of mm. like, why aren't I being miraculously healed? Why do I right. still have to have this struggle? Um, and sort of realizing now, like the things that used to be behind closed doors and, um, like that, that's kind of been my, I'll call it an issue with church of this. Why are we not bringing to the surface, the struggles that I know for a fact everybody has. And that's what I loved about 12 step and recovery was you're there on the, assumption that something is wrong in your life like that's if you walk through the door it's because you have a specific issue right Mm -hmm. um and you're going to talk about it and through talking about it that's how you get connected with other people and that's just how the whole thing works but with you know the sunday morning meet and greet it's um you know it's widely assumed that how's how's your week you know i'm blessed brother like things are good you know and (laughs) But, and, you know, but then, you know, like, but I'm pretty sure I saw you at the bar last night, like blackout, drunk. but okay. 
cool. Yeah. We're just gonna we're just gonna pretend. Um, we're gonna play pretend. Yeah, we're gonna play pretend. Um, but yeah, I don't exactly know where I was going with that. But it, it even seven years ago, um, it was a different thing to kind of have a, a struggle in mm-hmm. in any sort of um, relational public way. Um, especially, mm-hmm. you know, it's there's the thing with men too, where it's just kind of like you know you're suck it up, uh, deal right. with it, um, deal with it in a very specific way. Um, I was curious though, did you, um, in regards to your faith and your Christianity and all that, did, were there expectations of, um, how you would be, you know, delivered from sins X, Y, and Z or life struggles Mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z? Um, was there, it would, was there anger toward God? Was there like confusion? I guess like has, how has your faith kind of evolved over time in regards to struggle? It's a great question. So when I hear you describe that, the term that comes to mind that they use is spiritual bypassing. Um, And the idea behind that is, you know, that we, we all are, Uh, we're, we're prone to, use faith um, as a way to get around actually dealing with our issues, you know? And so we tell things like that, or you hear that from people, like just, just, just believe, just, just pray, just give it to God. And, and the idea is that, you know, they'll, they'll just be this magic wand, you know, God can wave over you if you, if you just do it right, if you have that magic faith and it should be simple, it should be miraculous just like that. When we all know that's, that's often, if ever the, the, the case in reality. And um, I've done my fair share of that. I've certainly seen it enough um, in all my years, those, those 20 years of Christian ministry um, from the beginning. I, I've always been a little bit of a rogue, a little bit of a maverick, I guess, in terms of like seeing some of this stuff, pointing it out, wanting to talk about it, wanting to confront like, hey, this, this doesn't match. This doesn't match reality. And then and, and all the more, you know, coming, coming into this this kind of involvement with like the faith-based recovery support and harm reduction, because like you said, you know, I began to meet these people and especially at this point in my own life, when it was so critical, this critical moment when everything I knew, even from my faith was unable to help me in that moment of, of deepest, darkest need. And then I met these two guys who had gone through hell and back and, 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 and full disclosure, neither one of them. Well, the, 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 one of them might consider himself a Christian. The other ones certainly wouldn't. Uh, but they in, they helped me learn how to use tools and, and spiritual disciplines that actually made it made a difference in my life that were actually effective. You know, and we see that all the time. We see people leaving the, the faith. We see this uh, move towards like a post-Christian society where a lot of people are kind of waking up to the fact that, you know, they, they maybe they grew up in church. Maybe they believed you know, all their life, but they were never given the tools uh, that they needed to really confront and overcome the things they struggle with in their life. That it's the, the faith to a lot of folks is just that we're playing pretend and we're calling it faith. And it's not that at all. Was it, was it hard to humble yourself to, because that is funny. You say that um, I struggled. It's, it's, you know, <laughs> The glasses of hindsight are incredibly mm-hmm. um, crystal clear, but I, I mean, I 
started going to recovery meetings when I was 15. Um, and I finally got into recovery when I was 27. So like it took a very long time. Uh, and one of the things that kept me out was um, absolute spiritual arrogance of, well, I, you know, I have the one true answer over here. You know, I was the, I was the classic uh, preacher when I was just high out of my gourd, like, because <laughs> I mean, and, and honestly it was, you know, I guess you can call it the um, like the Protestant loophole. It was just like, okay, I'm doing all this stuff, but like I'm covered by grace. So like, I'm good. And you know, yeah. I, that looking back, that is how I live my life. Of course, in any given moment, that wasn't really what I believed. You know, I obviously like I desired to do the right thing. And that's why like Paul and David were my, uh, my, my people in the Bible of like, Oh, you know, wretched man am I. And going mm. through that, that cycle of, um, sin, repentance, uh, mm. grace, and like really chasing that, that spiritual high too, that, you mm. know, only good, mid 2000s youth groups can can get oh you, yeah right? oh yeah <laughs> um and so uh for the longest time i thumbed my nose at the 12 steps and, and 12 step things because it's like okay they they don't really know what they're talking about and for whatever reason it wasn't until this last time that it finally clicked that it was like oh all this is is a very practical way to live out Mm-hmm. what you supposedly believe, you know, it'd be, and that was the thing I had to swallow as well was like, I, I say that I believe all these things, but what does the evidence of my life show? Mm-hmm. And it was like, Ugh, I don't want to mm-hmm. look at that. Like that is very, very rough. Um, so I wonder, was it, was it difficult or humbling for you at all to accept help from, you know, gas, yeah. someone who's not even a Christian, yeah, someone who's not a Christian. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I I wrestle with that all the time to this day. You know, we there's something in us that likes to appear put together, especially if you hold a certain position, if you're well known in your community. You know, if you've written a book, I, I don't know. You know, whatever it might be, you know that that suggests I've I've got something figured out here, or you know I've attained a certain level, and it's just not true. It's just not true of any of us. All right. And so we, we always like we read stories and even when we read the Bible and we read even the parables of Jesus. And we, we like to we naturally see ourselves in the hero. Right. So as you're talking, I'm thinking of Jesus's parable of the, the prodigal son. And right. And we read that and we off, we automatically or at least I always did, you know, place myself in the feet of the prodigal son who goes away, who comes back. He's, you know, the center of the father's attention is the star of the show. But, but if I'm being honest with you, I've been the older son far, far more often. You know, the one that thinks, hey, man, look, what's going on here? I, I, I stuck with you when this when this fool didn't. I've been here you know, all my life. I'm working hard. I've done all the right things. You know, I've believed the right things. And you're throwing this party for this schmuck, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's a very humbling experience. It's hard to uh, to do that. But that's the way of freedom, right? Is this surrendering that ego, surrendering that pride and letting that go and realizing that, hey, we're all in a big mess here together. And it looks differently in each of our lives. Some of us, it looks a little more polished. Some of us are better at hiding it. <laughs> yeah. But hey, we're all we're all right there. So what, yeah, well said, well said. And so what was, when you started, um, I guess we can kind of move to the new book. Um, mm-hmm. And my first 
question is when you started um, and it, it, it seems, and I, I think you said as much that it seems like this was like a, like divine calling for you. Um, what was the reaction from the churches you were church or churches uh, you were involved in? I wasn't, I'm, I'm not sure if you mm-hmm. moved around from one to the other, um, but what was, was there a like prevailing um attitude toward mm. harm reduction addiction in general from from these places and, and how was yeah this received? there's uh there's been there's been some bright spots but there's also been a lot of hesitation and a lot of resistance and that's uh putting it lightly i guess mm. you know there's also been a lot of head scratching especially with the concept of the second book how does faith and harm reduction go together because where I'm from, you know, the social conservative crowd, evangelical Christians, which is the target audience for this book, you know, there's there's still that lingering uh, view of drug use and addiction as it's simply a moral failing, nothing more. And um, they, you know, there, there's this failure to see a lot of the underlying issues that um, often lead a person down a path that leads to chaotic drug use and, and this this trap. And um, that's difficult. You know, there are, there are cultural notions of like enabling, uh, of being unable to differentiate between, you know, uh, maybe grandma who, whose grandson keeps coming to her for rent money, you know, and she mm-hmm. just keeps forking it over to d- differentiate between that, you know, enabling and the proper boundaries that a person needs to put in place to protect them and the person that they love who may have an addiction and harm reduction as just a, a community-based uh, approach to how, how we care for and love our neighbors and how we support um, them and the hope that they'll stay healthy, they'll stay alive, and the hope that they'll get back on their feet. Those are two entirely different things, but where I'm, where I'm from and, and the people I've interacted a lot with, it's hard to pull those things apart and show them the difference. So that's, that's one example there as well. So it's, a, it's kind of a pioneering effort, and I'm by no means the first. But to my knowledge, this book, Drugs and Jesus, is the first of its kind to target specifically evangelical Christians coming from a conservative background and culture. Um, all the other Christians I know who are actively working in the space of like faith-based harm reduction are in more socially progressive circles and churches. And those are the ones that I've, I've learned a lot from myself. But in the evangelical world, which is largely what my background is, that's my tribe, so to speak, there's not much of this going on. And it's, it's, a, it's been in the very early stages of people even begin to being able to put the pieces together and see how harm reduction can be a very natural expression of their Christian faith rather than something that's at odds with it. Mm. So if, if, if I were to pose that as a question, playing devil's advocate, so how could mm. harm reduction be a natural extension of a Christian faith? Yeah. So um, here in Southern Ohio, you know, we have a very strong uh, culture of, of people who consider themselves to be pro-life. And that's, that's the angle I take in one of the books, actually. Uh, of course, that's often framed solely in relation to like the question of abortion and, and pro-life as being anti-abortion. So I try to speak to that part of a person who holds that conviction, that part that wants to honor the sanctity of every human life from a belief in God that says every, every human life is valuable made in the image of God, and therefore we must protect and honor that. Uh, but try to challenge them to expand the scope of their vision and say, look, if you really want to be pro-life, harm reduction is a pro-life issue. Because from the womb to the tomb, if we're going to be consistent here, have a consistent ethic of human life, we have to, we have to recognize 
and respond to the fact that all lives matter to God in a very real sense. And that includes the person who uses drugs. That includes deep in the throes of addiction. Whether you think they're beyond the reach of redemption or not, God doesn't, right? And, and that, ex, that extension of God's grace continues to be held out again and again, and no matter how often it is shunned or denied or not responded to. And so I frame it in that way with a lot of folks I talk to. Harm reduction is a pro-life issue uh, because we're not talking about the morality of anybody's choices. We're not moralizing about their plight. We're not talking about what's right and wrong. All we're doing is saying people are dying at an alarming rate. They're dying before their time. Lives are being cut short. And I don't care who you are or what you believe, when you're dead, it's game over. There's no more shot at recovery. There's no more shot at redemption. There's no happy ending to that story. But as long as a person still has breath in their lungs, there's hope, right? And so that's the very, that's the baseline. How can you deny that as a person of faith? You know, especially if you claim to be pro-life on the basis of this belief in Christ, this belief in God that says, hey, every human being is precious and valuable and we've got to honor them just because they're made in the image of God. So that's how I can, that's, that's one example. Yeah, take it. that's great. That's great. And it's, what's interesting too, is harm reduction as a topic um, is, and I'm, I'm sure you've maybe encountered this, um, but in the recovery community, it, it has been a mm. very divisive issue. And I will mm. fully uh, endorse that my mind has, has been changed on it as well. So I, I quit using opiates right in 2014 right like i had my last overdose august 24th 2014 and right when at least around here the supply was starting to get hit with with fentanyl and you know so things like uh medication assisted therapies um like suboxone methadone um the idea of uh, safe supply movement in Canada, um, right. safe injection sites. Um, I, I actually interviewed um, a guy who started an organization called the Church of Safe Injection, and he was basically uh, made it into mm. a church so that uh, it would be legal because where he was, the like getting safe um, syringes, cookers, things like that uh, was illegal. Mm. But if it was a religious thing, then it was so pretty fascinating. Um, but in recovery that it's been, it's been, you know, you would think that recovering addicts themselves, uh, would be more open-minded, but you know, the apps, the apps, you know, and I'm an abstinence guy myself, but the, Mm -hmm. you know, people really struggled with like, is Suboxone sober? Is this, that is whatever. And I used to have a dog in that fight until, I mean, I have, dozens and dozens and dozens um close friends that I, that I've lost mm. and I'm just yeah over it and I and you're absolutely nail on the head like all all the these opinions do not mean a thing if the person is dead and the fact is right they are dying in mm. I mean it's it's it is the most astounding thing that nobody really seems to talk about or understand and it's because it's the undesirables right it is the Mm -hmm. you know while that attitude is still there you know one less uh 
uh, leech on the welfare system. You know what I mean? And it's like, but these are now it's, it's creeping into, you know, middle-class and celebrities and now people are paying attention because it's like, okay, so maybe we do need these, these things. Maybe, mm-hmm. uh, maybe, you know, when, when you have an enemy like fentanyl, you absolutely have to expand the weapons you use. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, and it's not even just people who have like a severe addiction. I mean, recreational drug users who, who really don't have, you know, a dependency are, are just as at risk. You know, it's not long ago. I just heard a story of, um, you know, Ohio State, which is a couple hours north of me, uh, a couple of university students, you know, they were just, um, they popped a few pills that they thought was something, you know, they were trying to stay up late, you know, do their homework and it had fentanyl in it and they're gone now. So, you know, I, I, I don't care about any of these, you know, what you think about this, what you think about that. I, I when my son goes to college here in a few years, <laughs> I want to be safe. And, and uh, you know, if he experiments, if he does something, if somebody offers him something, I want him to know full well what's going on so he can make a good decision. And if he happens to make a decision that puts him at risk, I want every resource available to, to keep him safe and save his life if something happens. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you believe about what. I want that for your son or daughter, you know, whoever I'm talking to, just like I do mine. And I I I, I lose patience quickly with folks who struggle to see that um so yeah i think fentanyl has really changed the game just like you pointed out you know with with so many people dying in in such an unprecedented number you know this is this is we've got to change that we think about this and approach this absolutely and it's and it's you know the the war on drugs um reagan era like has mm-hmm. to be seen for what it is like just an abject failure and it's mm-hmm. and the, the thing is, and so the the recent thing that i've seen um people just cheer about is i i i rarely i rarely because i get so mad uh get into facebook arguments but every now and then <laughs> i will die on a hill and Someone just posted, um, you know, a bunch of mayors uh, and governors around the country are now imposing incredibly harsh uh, sentences, mandatory sentences on fentanyl possession, right? And everyone's like, hoorah, yes, that's the solution. And it's just (laughs) like, okay, like this is, you know, a lot of y'all are too young to remember the crack epidemic, you you know? And we also forget that we're in, we are in this situation because of unintended consequences of heavily penalizing yes. thing, right? You know, yep. I was around for the, the Oxycontin 80 days and using, mm-hmm. and, you know, we weren't dying like we are now. And we thought we were doing the exactly. right thing by just ban, ban, ban. Um, and mm-hmm. here we have fentanyl. And now we think we're going to do the right thing with that. But now the fentanyl analogs like car fentanyl, mm-hmm. I mean, these things are loaded and ready to go as soon as fentanyl gets banned like it's not it's a shell game it is not that is not the answer Mm -hmm. unless you're unless you're all caught up just to defending a moral ideology or you you have like a financial interest in upholding the drug war you know it's so hard to get people to see and admit this but but it's so glaringly obvious at this point that this is the big driver behind the problem here. And uh, we've got to get more creative. I mean, I mean, now here in Ohio, Xylazine is, is on the streets now and it's hitting hard and it's causing some real issues. And the governor just said that they signed a new law, you know, criminalizing it. It's like, dang, hoorah, great. Uh, you know, it, it's been working yeah. for 40 years. I guess it'll work this time too, you know? 
Tell yeah. them it's illegal and punish them. Use it. Yeah, this is really going to solve the problem and save some lives. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I guess with uh with with the time we got left, like, what would you, you know, tell tell more about the book? And I guess what what are you currently doing? What's the what's the message you would like people to receive? Yeah, just to um, be open to conversation. I wrote this book primarily as a conversation starter. You know, you've worked through some of it. It's it's written. It's easy to read. The tone is very conversational. That's my writing voice, my style. And each chapter ends with, you know, three or four reflection questions. So my hope is that this book will be taken up by individuals, small groups, whole church communities, and that they will use it to be able to start a conversation about this issue in their community. Because, you know, I know there are churches. I know there are Christians out there who do understand the scope of the problem. They understand the significance of what's going on. They know somebody, they've been touched themselves and they, they feel compassion, but they don't understand and they don't know where to start or how, how, how that could look like. And then they also feel a need for there to be a, a theological tie-in you know, with their faith to help kind of motivate them into this kind of ministry. So that's what I wrote this book to provide the beginnings of to start a conversation with folks who feel that need and have that desire, but don't know where to start. And, and nobody's ever come along and said, here's how this fits perfectly with your faith in Christ. And you can use that as a motivator for you to do some real good in your community, save some lives, you know, make provision for, for your neighbors who are, who are suffering and struggling just down the street from you. You know, it's not enough that church is cozy and warm and sing about Jesus. You know, if we follow him, we have to, learn how to see Christ in what Jesus himself called the least of these. And that's how I frame the whole thing from the beginning is Matthew 25. Jesus says in the final day of judgment, you know, the, the God's going to separate all of humanity to the sheep and the goats. And, and he, he suggests that the judgment is going to hinge upon one thing, how you treated or mistreated the most vulnerable members of your community. He said, he's going to say to the sheep, look, blessed of you, my father, enter into life. And they're going to say, he's going to say, when I, when you saw me hungry, you gave me food. When you saw me thirsty, you gave me drink. When you, when I was sick and in prison, you visited me. And they're going to say, well, when did we, when did we see you in all of these, these situations? And he's going to say, whenever you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And that's not an exhaustive list at all. We could easily insert in there, whatever you did to the person who uses drugs. Lord, when did we see you overdose? You know, we didn't come to your aid with Narcan or we didn't advocate for, for these life-saving tools to be made publicly available to people at risk. And he's going to say, whenever you did or didn't do it for these, I tell you what, you did or didn't do it for me. So that's the message now that I kind of try to carry forth to the churches that I speak to um, wherever I go. And I do that kind of consulting. You know, this Sunday I'm, I'm traveling three, three hours north in, in Ohio to speak to two little Lutheran congregations. And this is the message. This is what I'm going to bring them. So that's that's what I want Christians to see. If you're really serious about following Christ, being the hands and feet of Jesus, whatever you're going to call it, in the midst of this overdose crisis, which is robbing the lives of more people under the age of 50 than anything else now in our society, you can't afford to set this one out. You just can't. Well, well, well said. So if if um, people want to uh, have you come speak, you know, give give all the. Uh, you know, what is the book called? Where can we get the book? If, yeah. if people want to get in contact with you to. Yeah, right on. So Drugs and Jesus, that's the name of the book. It's available as of last Tuesday. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it really anywhere that you can buy books. 
Um, it's got my contact info in the back. I'm active on social media, Facebook, uh, TikTok. <laughs> Believe it or not, my son got me into that. Uh, but my website is www.lawsonrights.com. Any of those areas you can reach me at, um, and I'd be happy to come help, happy to come speak, happy to come start a conversation about this, this very important issue. Awesome. And so I'm going to last question. And this is my, uh, yep. this is, this is, this is just for me that I try to ask every uh, new guest I have is how do you experience your relationship with God on a daily basis? Like what is your experience with this thing that we call God? Man, that's a really good question. <laughs> Um, I, I experience, I experience God very much in my interactions with other people when we can find a place, reach a place where, you know, we feel safe enough and, and courageous enough to kind of let down some of those walls that we all live with every day. You know, those personas we carry into our daily interactions at work, at home, at church, <laughs> wherever it is. And, um, it's all, it's all so much, you know, fakeness. And so those conversations like this one, where you can kind of connect, you know, on a heart to heart level with another, another person. Um, I, I think that's a lot of what Jesus meant when he said, when two or more gathered in my name, uh, there, there I will be. And so that's how I experience probably God most in my life at this point. Love it. Love it. Uh, well, Josh, thanks again. Uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for, thanks for doing what you're doing. Um, it is you know, from one person on the front lines to the other, it is often a thankless job, but um, you're doing the Lord's work. It's, it's tough out there for real. So, so thank yeah. you for what you're doing. Same to you, brother. Thank you. Um, send me an email at churchandotherdrugs at gmail.com, patreon.com slash churchandotherdrugs and storefrontzero.com slash churchandotherdrugs. Both ends of the candle burn the rope. So talk to me, talk to me, I've got it bad Forgot what I needed, lost what I had Mary, I feel the devil in this room tonight I'm fading, I'm a sinner and I can't stop now unless I hold Somebody wake me